Hello and welcome to another episode of the Daily Remedy Podcast. Today we are here with Mr. David Poses, author of the book, The Weight of Air, here to discuss his book. So David, thank you so much for your time. Thank you for having me. So great to be here. Hi. Appreciate it. So what we found very interesting about the book right off the gate was how vivid you would describe the scenes. And going through the book, it was almost as if we were jumping from scene to scene in your mind and kind of experiencing the emotions. Can you talk to us a little bit about how you crafted the book and what was going through your mind? Um, yeah, I mean, you know, writing has always kind of been my, um, I don't really want to say it's a passion because it's more like a bodily urge, but um, <laughs> I've always had some kind of, you know, writing project going on, uh, words come out and then I feel better. Um, so this was not the first book that I've written, although it's the first book that I shared with people. Um, and I had written stories also. So it's really, um, I guess this is just kind of my style of writing. Um, one of the strategies I always try to use no matter what I'm writing is like, if I'm in a scene in a room, I want to bring the reader into the room at the last pos possible second. And I want the reader out of the room um, before the scene is over, basically. So, you know, I guess that's the boom, boom, boom uh, <laughs> strategy. Yeah. No, uh, I, I like it. It makes for very compelling reading. One of the parts of the book in every chapter that really resonated were the dialogues. So effectively in each chapter, you would kind of begin with some brief context, then you jump into the scene, there'd be a dialogue, and there would always be these nuggets of wisdom in between mm -hmm. these vivid scenes, vivid dialogue. Was that intentional or is that how you naturally think? Um. You know, I, I think that's, um, I mean, I don't want to say it's not intentional, but I, I guess it is how I, I mean, it, I, I, I don't know, I don't want to sound like I'm some kind of genius, you know, like, <laughs> it, it, yeah, I mean, like, the, the book puts you inside my brain, basically, I mean, that's, you know, um, I wanted the reader to get what I felt was important, um, you know, and, and that's that. I mean, you have to remember that like this book starts in early 1995, it ends nice. in 2008, um, you know, so there's a lot that you're not seeing, um, <laughs> you yeah. know? I mean, I, I always think about whatever I'm writing. I mean, I, I had this kind of like deal with myself um, many, many years ago that, uh, you know, what you don't see and, and the kind of implications like when you're watching a movie, and I had this thought many years ago that like, you know, nobody ever sees like Batman tying his shoes, but you know that they're tied. I mean, I guess he wears boots, but you know what I mean? Like you don't have to see Batman putting on his outfit when he slides down the bat ball. Like, you know that it happens. It's fine. So, um, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm trying to, um, you know, craft it fast, I guess. But that's also how my how my brain works and um, just kind of how I operate. I mean, like, you know, I get in a car. I want to get where I'm going as fast as possible. Like I don't want to be sitting around driving, you know, slowly and and uh, you know being a tourist or whatever. So it, it's pretty much how I live. No, no, we appreciate that. Uh, in fact, that's in many ways how you describe your family. Uh, one of the analogies you describe your family through is Plato's cave. And what's really interesting is we don't get a full linear plot of your family, but we pick up bits and pieces. So we pick up about kind of your dad not being fully transparent about the family dynamic. Uh, we get a little bit about your brother and towards the end, we find that he is your hero in many ways because of the way he handled his own journey as well. Yes. Do you, did you want your family to be presented in that way or was it part of kind of demonstrating just how complex addiction was for you? 
Um, I mean, I guess, you know, I, I struggled throughout. I, I wanted to give you more, um, I mean, especially about my brother. Um, I, I wanted to have a lot more contrast. You know, it's, it's my story. So um, I'm constantly at odds with, uh, I never want to put anything in that's going to make anybody upset. You know, I mean, my brother yeah. um, has certainly, you know, I, I have nothing but, uh, you know, a ton of respect and admiration for him and what he's overcome. But there's details of his life that he didn't want, um, you know, in the book or, or details that, uh, you know, I mean, I, I'm, I'm not going to like just stuff something in there like I think this is important, but, you know, he doesn't want it or whatever. So, I mean, I, I think I felt it's it's the same as, you know, kind of the Batman idea where, like, I believe that you will get what you need to get out of any given moment without needing to give you more, you know, context or, or backstory or whatever. I mean, that, you know, always makes me crazy when like you open a book and, and they're like, let me just tell you a couple of things before I tell you anything. It's like, you know, fuck you. I mean, just tell me what's going on. And I'll figure it out. <laughs> what, what I really like about that approach is that you create contrast really nicely. So at the very beginning, you vividly describe your dad and some friend of his referring to you as a dope fiend. Yeah, and right. then, Towards the end, when you're introducing your dad post-marriage, you have this weird contrast where it was Bob and Ruby, dad and daughter. And it was almost as if his words no longer mattered. And that was a big contrast from the beginning to the end of the book. <laughs> Can you talk through that transition for you? Um, yeah, I mean, I guess I... Um... I, I wasn't really consciously aware as I lived my life that um, his approval mattered less to me, you know? Um, I was really surprised to find out that it hadn't. And I think, you know, just like over the course of your life, you you hear, you know, cliches and people say things. And, you know, I mean, I had a lot of therapy. And so, you know, this idea that like, well, he's just, he's your father, but he's just a man. And, you know, you don't owe family anything. And blood is thicker than water, you know, you, you kind of hear all that stuff. And, and I think um, I wanted to um, be able to kind of hold him at an arm's length and, and not really be, um, you know, so wrapped up in, in what he thought. And I was really surprised to find that that happened. Like it wasn't, it wasn't really, um, you know, like I'm going to do this. And when I see him, you know, that will happen, um, you know, and, and I think a lot of that um, in the book, as you see, like a, lo a lot of things just kind of happened, you know, in spite of my, uh, you know, best efforts or, or even kind of conscious awareness. I mean, I, I've learned a lot about myself um, from other people's observations about, uh, you know, what what I, my behavior in, in the book. So yeah. I, I think that's a very apt way of describing it, because so much of your journey is a mixture of you being a willing actor leading and things in a sense happening to you. Right. But there was one chapter, this was chapter eight that I thought was really interesting where you juxtapose the business of addiction healthcare. Addiction, is it a disease? Makes no sense in your words. And then balancing powerlessness of addiction with responsibility of addiction. Did those thoughts naturally come to you or you had to yes. think back? No. Um, you know, it, it's funny you should ask. I mean, my my views, um, these thoughts have been in my head since before I, I started. Um, you, well, I mean, certainly the rehab stuff, like when I got to rehab, you know, that was my thought. But like my views have been the same since then. They're more evolved now. And it so happens that like science is on my side. 
um, you know, now, but, but these are, these are thoughts that I, I've, I've been thinking the whole time. Um, so it was a little bit, you know, I, I wanted to write the book in present tense because I wanted to be very clear that like, this is what I'm thinking when I'm 19, not this is a 40 something year old dude reflecting back on, you know, whatever. So it, it was hard to go back and write that without, you know, so much of like, oh, I know this now, or, you know, like this, you know, all these studies, you know, show this. Um, but, I, you know, I, I felt that that was important. So, um, you know. I, I like how you uh, describe certain terms, and this is what makes your book so compelling in that not only is it a journey of you, it's a journey of how you understand key terms in society. So, for <laughs> example, you talk about addiction as a disease, question mark, and then in the epilogue, where you're really kind of tying everything together in a societal sense, you call addiction a right which I thought was really fascinating. Can you talk to that journey of how you define and understand addiction? Yeah, I mean, you know, I, I think um, I knew very early on that, um, the, you know, I, I feel like when you talk to somebody about addiction, it's kind of a catch-all word that, you know, anybody can look it up in the dictionary and see, uh, you know, compulsive use despite negative consequences. Like that's the dictionary definition, but I feel like we all have different definitions that we bring to a conversation and nobody ever says like, well, how do you think about addiction, you know, in the middle of the conversation? So for me, it's really, it's very complicated and it's two different things. You've got the physical addiction, which is a medical condition. Um, you know, you drink alcohol every day for a year and you stop, you're going to get sick, right? Um, and then you've got the, the addiction, the compulsion to use, right? So I look at it as, um, I use heroin consistently enough that if I stopped all of a sudden, I'm, I'm going to get sick. Like I'm, I'm, my body is addicted to heroin. Um, the compulsion to use heroin that got me to it in the first place was I was trying to kill pain. I mean, it's a painkiller. And so, you know, it's a compulsion for relief. So um, the, the idea of like sobriety, you know, the disease part and what they're trying to cure in when I was in rehab um, with sobriety and they use sobriety and recovery so interchangeably. Like, so if, if addiction, the physical, you know, medical condition, and then addiction, the compulsion, compulsive disorders are mental health disorders, right? So like OCD is a compulsive disorder. The guy that turns the doorknob 77 times because my grandmother's going to die if I don't, um, you know, do it. So if I stop turning the doorknob, I'm sober, I've abstained. My addiction to turning the doorknob has been cured with sobriety, right? However, the compulsion to turn the doorknob is no less acute. Sobriety doesn't do anything for that. It, it's just stopping the thing. So the disease of addiction, like I, I feel like the, the faith and abstinence programs are trying to cure a mental health disorder, a compulsion with the, the, the end of, of a medical condition. You know what I'm saying? No, I completely agree with you. And it's a notion of false equivalency that you describe very astutely. Uh, you talk about compulsions versus cravings. You talk about different definitions of abuse. And you even have a phrase that I think is very interesting where you talk about heroin and alcohol and that alcohol is not legal because it's safer. It's safer because it's legal. Through your lived experiences, are you more aware of these false equivalencies that people keep perpetuating? Talk a little bit about that. Yeah, um, I mean, definitely. Um, alcohol, I mean, you know, it's it's um, the most dangerous substance you can put in your body. I mean, it's yeah. more addictive than all drugs, um, than, than any other drug. I mean, you can die in alcohol withdrawal. No other substance can do that. The entire category of stimulants, I mean, you know, I grew up in the 80s with those crack, you know, this is your brain on crack, you take one hit and you're addicted commercials. 
there's no physical addiction with stimulants at all. So of course, you know, you smoke crack every day for you're going to be upset that the crack is gone, but you're not going to get sick. Alcohol will do that to you. Alcohol also will shut down every uh, organ in your body. You know, the problem with opioids is that they're going to shut down your central nervous system if you take too much. And it's the potency that does that. It's not the heroin itself. So, so alcohol can kill you, uh, you know, hundreds of different ways. Um, yeah. These other substances. And, and I've, you know, always been aware of that. I also, I mean, you know, I have very limited experience with alcohol. Like that one time um, in the book where I talk about, uh, you know, getting drunk when I was 15, that's the only time I've gotten drunk. So I, I you know, maybe alcohol is a lot of fun and I just don't know it. Um, but I, I hated the feeling of being intoxicated. And, you know, there's these um, myths about opioids that like, you know, people think, I, I know so many people who, when they found out, or, you know, when I started coming clean about my my life, they would say like, oh my God, how did you get away with that for so long? Nobody can function on heroin, you know, stuff like that. And yet we know that, um, you know, heroin is not the most powerful opioid. We know that. We know the doctors prescribe opioids that are more powerful than heroin. We know they prescribe them to people, you know, after hip replacement surgery or chronic pain. Um, and for these people, nobody ever says like, well, you know, grandma is on Dilaudid again, you know, she can't function. Like these people, these drugs are called medicines in those cases, right? They improve your life. We, know, we not only know that people can function on them, we know that they take them specifically to function. They can't exactly. function without them, you know? And yet we know that like nobody wakes up in the morning and starts guzzling down rum and functions all day. Like you just don't. Um, so we know these, we know these things, like these are facts. And yet mm -hmm. we're like shocked to find out that like, how could you possibly function on heroin? Um, and I think part of it is like, you know, people like me, I didn't go around saying like, hello, I'm on heroin. It's illegal. I would appreciate it if you didn't tell the police. <laughs> However, I just felt you should know that I'm on it right now and I'm functioning. Yeah. Um, you know, so, and, and, and other myths, like, you know, kind of ideas that I had that I, I, I didn't know, um, I couldn't back them up with facts. Like I just, it, it made sense to me that, you know, X, Y, and Z is true. I mean, I proved that to myself, obviously, like, yeah. you know, I mean, I couldn't like stand up straight when I drank alcohol. So, you know, the idea that like, it's much more intoxicating um, than opioids. And, you know, other, other myths like, um, you know, legalization leads to widespread use. Like, I mean, you know, look like alcohol, I live in New York, alcohol, you can buy alcohol at the gas station at the supermarket. I don't load up on booze every time I'm somewhere and they sell alcohol. I don't know anybody who does. Right. And you know, when you ask somebody should we legalize drugs, like they're going, no, because everybody's gonna start using, you know, if meth and heroin were legal, everybody would use it. And, and then you go like, really name one person. Of everybody, exactly. you know, do you know a single person who's going to do that? No, you know, absolutely not. All right, so then who are all these people that you're talking about? Um, you know, and, and it's like, I, I feel like we, um, you know, fear isn't rational. We have this very irrational fear of drugs. And that kind of, you know, precludes people from having any kind of rational conversation about it. No, I completely agree. Uh, in fact, you described this very eloquently in chapter 28 where you, it was one of these chapters and you had a, quite a few of them where you just take us on this journey through your mind and it's totally non-linear and it's amazing. So in chapter 28, you begin with the racist history of the drug laws. And then you talk about childhood dare experiences and that was totally ineffective. And then you get into the false equivalency of legal drugs versus heroin leading to what was very interesting, your discussions on writing flow. And I thought that was really interesting. Uh, let me ask you a question that uh, is deliberately uh, controversial. Okay. Is dope, as you described in the book, a means to derive flow when you're writing? That's an interesting question. Um, you know, I, I think um, I never thought of it as, um, as that kind of a thing. I, I saw it 
you know, as a, as a painkiller. I mean, um, you know, chronic pain is defined as any kind of discomfort, you know, that lasts for however long, blah, blah, blah. So, um, you know, if I had chronic back pain, um, I don't think anybody would be, you know, you, you wouldn't be asking like, do you take your back pain medicine in order to, you know, write? Um, yeah. So um, I, I think when I'm, when, when my opiate receptors are fully saturated, I mean, you know, it, opioids kill um, physical, opiate receptors are responsible for physical pain and emotional well-being, mm -hmm. right? So um, it makes, and, and depression is a degenerative biological condition. So it makes sense that, um, you know, and opiates, opioids don't know if you're killing physical pain or emotional, you know, like whatever. Um, so it makes sense that whether it's back pain or psychological pain, when I'm more comfortable, you know, I'm, I'm able to, uh, you know, the writing flow happens better. Um, you know, I, I think better, everything is going to be better. If it was back pain when I'm, you know, how am I going to write when I'm, you know, dying here in, you know, agony. Um, so I, I, I think it's, it's a fair, um, I think it's a fair, uh, I think it's a fair statement, but, but in a way it's not necessarily, um, you know, it, it's, it's, it's not like the way that it sounds, I guess, in, in the frame, right. you know, it's not like I'll take some heroin, I'll write well. Um, it's I'll take some heroin and I won't feel like I'm dying. <laughs> exactly. So essentially the way you contextualize your experience with heroin uh, in the medical world, it would be described as activities of daily living. So they kind of put some jargon speak around it to formalize it. And in many ways justified in how we understand drugs and medications in society. You talk about this a lot in the epilogue where you kind of tend to take a zoom out view of putting everything together. You derive a lot of these conclusions intuitively as you had mentioned with what the science is leading to now. Can you talk about how your process of intuition led to the same conclusion, but was clearly a different path? Yeah, I mean, you know, it, um, I, I, I'll give you a good example. Um, the buprenorphine, you know, yeah. I, I, I knew that it was gonna be, you know, why wouldn't it be an effective antidepressant? Um, or when, when I tell somebody, you know, heroin cured my depression, like, what the hell are you talking about? Why would yeah. it do that? So I didn't understand how, I, I didn't know what opiate receptors were. Um, I mean, you know, they were invented in 1971. So like they were barely <laughs> around, you know. Um, I, I didn't know what opiate receptors were. I didn't actually know what an opioid was when I started using heroin. I knew that heroin was a painkiller and, and that was it. Um, so it made sense to me that a painkiller would, I mean, you know, look, pain is like, you know, that saying, you know, pain is in your mind, pain is mental, you know, whatever. We don't rub opioids on the wound, yeah. like an ice pack. So you, whether you're, you know, shooting it or you take a pill or whatever, it goes to your brain. And, and I knew that because, you know, it, it, it kills your physical pain, it kills your emotional pain. So it makes sense that, um, that these things would be effective antidepressants. It made sense that buprenorphine would be an effective antidepressant. Um, I started writing this book before, you know, buprenorphine was like an experimental crazy ass thing that like, it, mm -hmm. it, you know, I mean, my agent was saying originally that, um, the idea of a, 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 what do you call it? You know, sub, um, you know, like a, a line about the book that would be like um, my unconventional path to recovery. Yeah. Yeah. You know? um, and, and it was back then. And so, um, you know, there was this article that came out at some point we were having that conversation about buprenorphine might actually be an effective antidepressant. And it was like, we don't know why that would be, but it yeah. seems, you know, whatever. And then the kappa receptor, you know, research started coming out and it was just like, you know, I don't know. I think there's something to be said for, um, you know, doctors uh, and with, you know, no offense to doctors, but like doctors go to school and they learn what they're taught. 
people who have lived experience um, experience what they know. And so people who use drugs, you know, because of the stereotypes of like, you can't trust us and, you know, we're lying about everything. It's like, we're lying because we're ashamed of the drugs. That doesn't mean yeah. we're lying because we thought we walked our dog yesterday or had pancakes for breakfast. Um, so our experience is like, we're, we're being honest about, you know, this is why I'm taking this drug, this is how it feels, you know, whatever, but we're being told like, no, it's an excuse. Depression is an excuse, pain is, an, you know, all of this crap. So after all, we're just like, why do we even want to you know, say anything? But I think a lot of this kind of intuitive, um, uh, you know, um, information is, is definitely out there and people know it. Um, you know, we just, we're not, we're not so forthcoming with it when we're, you know, repressed and told, you know, hey, we're full of shit and, you know, stop, stop lying. So your direct experiences and the intuition you've gained uh, provides a certain fund of knowledge that I think, as you had mentioned, is lost in this world of data-driven healthcare. But clear, clearly the pandemic and recent studies have demonstrated that data isn't definitive for healthcare. Uh, how do you feel that you could contribute to modern medical thought? How can the intuition and the role of the subjective perceptions help healthcare? I mean, that's a, that's a great question. I, you know, I, I feel like, I mean, when you look at the amount of, of doctors that specialize in addiction medicine, I mean, there's like a million and a half uh, licensed physicians in the United States right now. Of that million and a half, I want to say it's like less than 1,200 are certified in addiction medicine. So it's a very small field. I think uh, you know many of the of the uh, addiction specialists that I know are are willing to listen um, to this kind of stuff. I think it's the doctors that have these kind of preconceived. No I mean, I know a lot of doctors who genuinely believe that like AA is the cure for addiction, and why shouldn't they? I mean, addiction is taught for what like half an hour in medical school. Yeah, exactly. Plastic surgeon. It's not, you know, just because you're a doctor doesn't mean you know everything about, you know, this very obscure toenail fungus that, uh, you know, nobody has, <laughs> you know, I mean, so, so addiction is really no different. It happens to be in the spotlight right now, but um, I think it's really a question of changing the perceptions so that those doctors are willing to listen and not look at us, you know, like if I went in with a toenail fungus, they'd be like, oh my God, I want to talk to you. I want to know everything about it because yeah. that's really crazy. But you go in and say, hey, I'm a heroin user and let me tell you some stuff. They're going like, this guy's totally foolish. He's probably doctor shopping. Um, <laughs> yeah. So getting an, getting an unbiased audience, I think, um, would, would be you know, a prerequisite to, uh, to anything useful that I could do. I, I, I like that approach in talking about biases because when you contrast your experience with your therapist and the way he took notes and the way he asked, are you content compared to the addiction specialist who didn't take notes, but was keen to write P-A-I-D, paid. Mm -hmm. uh, and it, it was very interesting how you contrasted the addiction specialist who could provide the group in orphan relative to the therapist who actually provides the counseling that you seem to value more. Uh, tell me a little bit about how that played out in your mind where the person who's giving the medications clearly shows a lack of interest that the person who's willing to talk to you has shown. <laughs> yeah. I mean, what's funny about um, Dr. Evergood, my therapist, was he started insisting that he was unqualified to treat me because he's not an addiction uh, psychiatrist. And we had all these conversations about, um, you know, same thing with, with the compulsive disorder. I was like, if I came in here and I said, I have OCD, would you treat me? He was like, absolutely, no problem, you know, whatever. But I don't have any experience with addiction. I'm like, you, you totally do, you just don't know it. Um, so I had to kind of beat him up a little bit. I think the thing about it is um, my brain uh, needs to be, I mean, look, opiate receptors multiply with every dose, whether you're taking it illegally or legally, whatever. So, um, with each, you know, I've got a billion quadrillion more receptors than I had many years. Like I know that I couldn't begin to recover until 
my receptors were fully saturated. So, you know, the therapy is, is vital for me because it, it um, gives me more tools in order to, you know, deal with whatever the issues are that come up with depression. Depression's not going away, like it's there. Um, but I couldn't, I could, you know, it's like if you're flashing around in the, in the middle of the ocean and you feel like you're going to drown, you're not thinking about how can I live a better life here? Like you're just focused yeah. on survival. Um, so, uh, so, you know, but the medication, like my doctor after good has to really, you know, be in the thoughts with me to, um, you know, to really be helpful. Whereas the medicine is just like a warm blanket over my opiate receptors. And, you know, uh, Dr. Effort, um, he has, we changed his name. Um, yeah. I, I didn't want to say his name. Uh, he, um, you know, he's just writing the prescription. And I found after a while that, you know, it felt like going to a drug dealer. Um, I wanted to have somebody who was more you know, uh, vested in, in, in my recovery. And the thing about that is at the, you know, this is long before the opioid crisis. So this is a guy who, uh, you know, understood, I mean, you know, look at the time there was what, like 2% of us doctors were licensed, were had the X waiver. So, so you could set up a nice little business for yourself, um, you know, get the X waiver and, uh, you know, charge people 500 bucks for five seconds of, of time, because how else are we going to get people working? Exactly. No, no, definitely the business model, the implicit moral hazards in the business model of addiction, medicine, addiction, healthcare were clearly demarcated from your experiences in a rehabilitation facility with how addiction specialists would treat you. Do you see things getting better or do you still see these financial incentives overwhelming addiction healthcare? Um, I, I do see the financial incentives overwhelming addiction healthcare. I mean, you know, look, medically assisted treatment, which is buprenorphine and methadone, are proven to dramatically uh, cut the risk of overdose, relapse, and death. Whereas yeah. faith and abstinence-based treatment is, is proven to do the exact opposite, right? So for a month of buprenorphine, um, you know, my doctor, who is a very expensive doctor, and if I pay out of pocket for the prescription, like you're talking about, you know, more than a thousand bucks a month, right? Versus I go to a, you know, really crappy rehab, it's gonna cost at least 10 times that, yeah. you know? And it's got a better chance of killing me than going to, the, you know, so, so I've had this conversation with a ton of parents lately where, you know, you say this to them and they're like, but it's rehab, like people, it's so baked into our collective consciousness that like nobody wants to believe that that's even possible. Yeah. Um, on the other side of the coin, these are, you know, for-profit businesses, like you can't really blame them for trying to make a profit, especially when, um, you know, I mean, like when, when McDonald's, when, you know, years ago, all of the like, oh, it's high in saturated fat, you don't want any McDonald's, like, what are they going to do? Just be like, yeah, we're unhealthy. Forget it. Don't eat here. I mean, exactly. <laughs> you know, you know, we're killing people. Um, so I, I, unfortunately, I don't think that it's changing. They're also contributing to the problem by, you know, saying like, oh, you know, if you're on medicine, you're not sober um, and really adding to the stigma. I mean, you know, look, I would never discourage anybody from doing anything that works for them. I know a lot of people who swear by AA and that's great. You know, go do that. Um, I understand why it doesn't work for opioid addiction. Uh, and, and I wish that these other treatment modalities were more available. I mean, if you just think about like what's going on out in the world right now, buprenorphine and methadone are, you know, they work like, yes. you know, there's empirical information that proves that. Um, so right now, excuse me, um, you know, you can, you can, you can get the toxic illicit fentanyl delivered to your home in under 24 hours, no matter where you live in the country. No problem. Wow. You can't get methadone. You just can't. Like you'd have to go to a clinic. You're going to wait on a long line. I, I call, you know, every now and again, I'll call methadone clinics just to like find out what the wait list is like, what's going on there. I'm on a wait list for a methadone clinic. That's, um, I won't say where it is, but I've been on the wait list for 18 months. Wow. And I call them, I call them every now and again, like, you know, how am I getting any closer, you know? And, and they're like, no, um, <laughs> and that's, that's horrifying. And 
And the take-home doses, like if the idea is to get you back to normal, there's nothing normal about going to a methadone clinic every day. Right. And if you're a person who, you know, imagine like a single parent or somebody who doesn't get paid time off from work, you can't be in withdrawal forever in your house in order to get on, you know, something else. You can't go to a methadone clinic every day. Um, so like, what are we doing here? I mean, the antidote is, is harder to get than the poison. Exactly. How's this going to end? You make a lot of policy suggestions and recommendations just through the words and the dialogue and what you're experiencing at the moment. Has that resonated with policymakers at all? Are people taking your book to heart? Because I know at Fordham University, the students are now reading that as part of their curriculum, but has that resonated to the level of policymakers? Um, you know, it, it has and it hasn't. Um, I've had some conversations with a few policymakers and you know, it's, it's a very hard conversation because in a lot of, um, you get a lot of like, well, you know, you're right, but you're the, you're, you're an exception. Like not everybody is mm. like, and they need to do, you know, um, you can't trust a lot of these people. They're selling the methadone, you know, whatever. And it's like, that's a stereotype. And maybe they are, but the fact is it's safe. I mean, look, if fentanyl is the stuff that everybody knows is killing people, every, every legal regulated substance, <clears throat> excuse me, it's safer than anything on the street. Yeah. So why wouldn't we, you know, like it just, it, it doesn't make sense. And when you're able to break through in, in a rational, you know, conversation, it, it always, well, you know, I agree with you, but I'm not going to say that publicly because, you know, whatever. I would love to get more involved with, um, with law. I mean, look, laws exist to keep us safe. Right. Law's job is to make the laws that keep us safe. I mean, what's going on here is just unconscionable. Like people are dying, 240 people are dying every day because they don't know what they're putting in their body. Overdose is an overly potent dose. Right. You don't know the potency of, of an illicit substance. Like it's, it's very obvious how to solve this problem. Uh, clearly, and, and I think there's a big problem with the, the incongruity in how people experience drug addiction and overdoses on a daily basis and the policymakers. I think the solution is what you alluded to, rationalizing it. There's one scene in the book where you talk about rationalizing your heroin use to your coworkers. And they were shocked to see how normal and highly functional you could be while taking it. But in your response, you simply said, my drug of choice is not legal. And so you rationalize in a way where you were able to garner the respect of your coworkers. Is that what it takes to just rationalize things in everyday terms? Or that's a unique to you phenomenon? Well, no, I mean, in, in that case, I was joking. And they knew that I was kidding. I mean, you know, I. I if I thought for a minute that they were going to take me seriously, I would have never said that. Um, I, mean, I would have got fired if they, if they thought I was on heroin. So, um, you know, I, I, I think, um, you know, it's back to the kind of stereotype in the first place. Like, I wasn't going to go around and be like, you don't think anybody can function on heroin, but I'm here to tell you you're wrong. Yeah. Um, I, I, you know, I mean, what's interesting is every, you know, the stereotype of like bad people use drugs instead of people who are in pain or using painkillers, which I don't understand that. But, um, you know, everybody, everybody who thinks that bad people use, you know, like I'm, I'm some kind of exception or whatever. Everybody only seems to know good people who, who fell into a bad crowd and use drugs. Exactly. Nobody knows any bad people who use drugs. And, <laughs> yeah. and really, you know, where are all these bad people? Like the, the junkie stereotype has been debunked, you know, a million times over and, uh, and nobody wants to admit it. So... Uh, it, it's very frustrating. Uh, uh, Mr. Pose, uh, I don't, out of respect to your time, I want to kind of leave you with one question that kind of I want to uh, encapsulate everything um, in this book. Uh, two parts. One, uh, what 
how, what is the definition of addiction? How should we understand it? And two, what do you want people to take away when they read your book? Okay. Um, I think addiction is, it's, it's a complex term. I think it's the, the physical medical condition and also the, the emotional, the, um, the mental health disorder. I think that's the most important part because it's a compulsion for relief. Drugs are a coping mechanism. We use drugs. I mean, yes, there are some people who use drugs for fun, recreational drugs, but for the most part, if you're um, addicted to drugs, you're taking them so much, you know, your compulsion is, is so great. It's not the drug's fault. It's because you're, you have a compulsion for relief. So I feel like we need to, um, with every other medical condition, we know that you have to treat the wound in order for the person to heal. With addiction, we explicitly say, no, no, that's an excuse, stop. <laughs> you just have to stop you know, taking the drugs. Like, like nobody's, pro for alcoholism, nobody's problem is like, I can't stop my arm from pouring the booze down my throat. <laughs> no, it's, it's um, I'm drinking to, you know, to drown my, Sorry. So treating the underlying condition, I think, is vital and, and looking at it any other way, I think, is just downright irresponsible. Um, what I want people to take away from my book really is that what you think you know is just not true. Mm -hmm. If you go in with an open mind, I mean, you know, preaching to the choir, like I don't I have a lot of conversations with people who I mean, don't get me wrong. It's great when people relate to my story and I'm, and I'm happy to you know, be that voice. But I want to talk to the people who think I'm like completely full of shit and wrong. Um, and you know, this guy is crazy and what's he talking about? Because I'm not like, I'm not making this stuff up. I mean, I, I say things that are backed in, not backed in science, these are scientific facts. Right. <laughs> so, so somebody who wants to look at me and be like, this guy's out of his mind, like bring it on. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Um, I, I really like that approach because it's the contrarian that proves right in the end. And I think willing to talk to people who may not understand your perspective is part of finding the right solution. Yeah. I mean, it's the only way that's the only way to change minds. Yeah. Um, you know, preaching of the choir is totally useless, but, um, you know, I mean, it's not useless. I'm, I'm, I'm happy to, you know, yeah. but you, you know what I mean? Yeah. Exactly. So uh, with that, uh, Mr. David poses, thank you so much for your time. I love learning about the experiences, the background stories that were intermixed in between the amazing scenes. The book is called the weight of air, a story of the lies about addiction and the truth about recovery. I would recommend anybody who has an interest in addiction medicine and what's going on in the policies of the opioid epidemic and addiction in general, to please take a look at this book. It is well worth your time. Thank you so much. Okay, thank you. Take care. Cool.